The thing that causes software companies to get created is change, or as we like to call it in technology, disruption. And that only when the change is big enough from the status quo to the new reality, is there a reason for somebody to like buy something new or do something different. Every single big enterprise company is being disrupted by startups right now. Good product management is interviewing the customer and they tell you they want something and finding out why they want it. That is my passion, the intersection between product and narrative. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, we sit down with Michelle Feaster, founder and CEO of UserMind. First, we get a great overview of Michelle's career, including how she made the jump from college dropout, working at a gas station, to sales engineer at an enterprise software company. Then, how she progressed up through several roles in companies to eventually run a large product organization and even help spearhead the acquisition of Opsware by HP. We dig into the details of that acquisition, much of which was covered in Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. But we get Michelle's perspective from the other side of the table with a focus on how she helped build the business case for acquiring Opsware within HP. We also get Michelle's perspective on the relationship between product, product marketing, and marketing, and how they should be organized within a company, including how it really varies depending on who you have in the company at any point. Finally, we dive deeper into user mind, exploring what the business does, how it can help SaaS and software companies, and how Michelle landed on the idea for user mind and the framework she used for evaluating other business ideas she was kicking around at the same time. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think it would be amazing to start off just with a little bit of uh, your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software. <laughs> well, now 20 years in enterprise software. You know, I, I think I have a non-traditional background, so I dropped out of college and uh, believe it or not, I was working in a gas station for a long time. I ended up working my way up from doing overnights at 4.50 an hour to managing a bunch of gas stations. And I actually got my break into tech in 97, 98, right? It was the boom when there was not enough, you know, qualified people to support, you know, tech companies in, in so many roles, you know, services or sales, pre-sales. And my partner at the time was selling, you know, inside software and called me up and said, hey, there's this opportunity at CompuWare. It sounds just like you. It's uh, for a pre-sales role, you know, thinks quickly on your feet, likes problem solving, uh, good communicator. You should really apply. And so, you know, I ended up applying to this job and it was kind of one of those programs, they called it the professional development program, where they literally moved you to Michigan for three months and taught me to code and taught you to pitch and taught you to, you know, do SQL and build applications. Um, I was my first time using email, if that dates me. 
And, you know, that was a big pivot point in my life. And so I kind of got out of this program and worked for them, ended up uh, joining pre-sales. And of course, for people who don't know CompuWare, it's kind of this, it was a billion dollar mainframe software company and they tried to, and the owner of it, by the way, owns the Detroit Red Wings, um, pretty famous entrepreneur in Michigan. And I kind of joined them when they were pivoting into client server and trying to kind of expand their uh, offerings from just mainframe into the kind of emerging client server and web tech world. And so I got this role doing pre-sales and they gave me, you know, this kind of boring product line, this testing product line. And uh, of course you had to, you had to pay them back for their investment. So I was supposed to work for 18 months at kind of a dramatically reduced salary. And I went into the field, uh, moved back home to New England and started taking deals from the number one player in the market. Uh, which was a company called Mercury Interactive. And so that kind of led to me being headhunted by Mercury. Um, and eventually I joined Mercury, which was this you know incredible opportunity in my life. I ended up spending seven and a half years there. And the first half of my time at Mercury, and that's an enterprise software company. So for people, viewers or listeners who don't know, um, Mercury was a company that started out doing testing products, eventually went into monitoring and kind of was in the space of competing with BMC you know, and, and HP in, in its kind of operational management software. And so I joined those guys and man, what a, what a crazy run for the first four years I was in pre-sales and I got to go through this really incredible growth process where we went from kind of doing 75 K deals with anybody who talked to us to, by the end, I was a strategic pre-sales person and I had the biggest accounts in the company like Liberty Mutual and GE And so I don't know if you've been through that growth process in a software company, but as you kind of go from selling, you know, transactional deals, 75K, 100K deals to strategic accounts where you're trying to get seven figure deals, the way you sell changes. And so a a very big part of what I was doing as a pre-sales person wasn't just technically proving software anymore. It was building kind of these multi-year roadmaps. And so I ended up for the customer, right, around what does a partnership with Mercury look like, a strategic relationship. And so ended up working really closely with the product organization on not just pulling them in to speak to my customers about roadmaps, but but eventually influencing a couple acquisitions that Mercury did, uh, probably most notably the Quintana acquisition. And somewhere in there, one of my mentors from corporate called me up and said, why aren't you in product? You know, you have such a, you've worked with these customers, you know, you can articulate where you think the company should be going. You have a vision for kind of how the strategy should look over the next couple of years. And of course, in my life, I don't know about you, but quite often I say no before I say yes. And so I, I actually originally said no. And I remember I was sitting in my house and I was reading a book about Hemingway one day and there's, I'm like on page four, you know, and Hemingway's 18. And there's these couple lines of text where he literally is 18 and gets in a boat and sails to France and has no money. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if he can do that, right, like then he became Hemingway. And so I kind of was like, what am I afraid of? And I called them back and said, I'm going to want to take the job. And so that was probably the next great real pivot point in my life. I ended up moving to California. Uh, and I was, gosh, so lucky in retrospect. The very first product management job I was given, in two, two reasons. One, I was given a product called Loadrunner, which at the time was you know a $250 million business for Mercury, the biggest product line in the company. 
we probably had 70% market share. Our customers loved this product and uh, it was a load testing product and still around. HP owns it now, but it was just this dominant product in the industry. And so imagine being given a product that works, that customers love. If you want to go meet with them and pull out requirements and interview them, everyone wants to talk to you. Uh, so I just, I can't even imagine a more perfect kind of first product management role. And probably the other interesting thing at the time at Mercury, we didn't have a split between product management and product marketing. So when I joined, I was kind of like this mini CEO, you know, I owned everything from talking to engineering about, I'm going to date myself, the MRD, you know, it was a, it was an on-prem software and our release cycles were like nine months to a year. So I did everything from kind of all the inbound product management work to I did all the sales training and all the sales enablement and all the product marketing content and bomb sheets and training. Like I said, I think it was the most perfect first role you could possibly have. And it took me a bit of time, you know, pre-sales, you kind of get used to getting wins real fast. And at the time, product management was an exercise in patience. You know, you might have a vision and it takes a year to release software. So, and maybe another six months to know if your ideas were right. So that was a huge adjustment for me, but man, it was my passion. I ended up just falling in love with going out and interviewing customers and kind of being a detective and, and figuring out you know, what people really wanted or needed. And so got super lucky, spent another four years in the product group at, at Mercury, kind of all on the QA side. We got uh, acquired by HP Software. And of course, you know, that was a super sad day, but as so often happens, uh, you know, new doors open for me. My boss called me up and said, hey, there's this, you know, really uh, kind of troubled business within HP data center automation, but it's in focus in the field. You know, uh, you, you should, it's a great career opportunity. You should go do it. And so I took over this business and I ended up building a business case to buy a company called Opsware, which uh, at the time was, I guess, you know, $100 million run rate. And the founders of that company were Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, who are now famous, obviously, for founding uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm. But at the time, they were just famous because Mark invented the browser. You know, they were already famous, but a previous chapter and so, you know, Ben kind of came in and became my boss at HP Software, and he's the reason I ended up in startups and ended up being a founder. He kind of said to me, hey, you're this crazy product person. You know, what are you doing working in a big company? You should just go build your own company. Um, and I remember at the time, I kind of laughing in his face and saying, you know, hey, I've never been at a startup. I don't even know what it would be like to work at a company that was 20 people, right? I joined Mercury at a couple hundred people, and I stayed through 3,000. And so when he left and they, it was not public yet that they were doing Andreessen Horowitz, one of their very first investments was a company called Aptio. And so uh, I knew the CEO, he had worked at Mercury, you know, my other mentor, my boss, the head of products at Mercury was on the board. And so I went and interviewed for a VP of products role and I ended up joining that company. I was employee 17. And I tell everybody that was like my college education or my, my MBA, really. I mean, it was... Uh, incredible. We, we grew from maybe when I joined 500k of uh, revenue to you know 70 million when I left, and it, it, it IPO'd and has since been picked up by private equity. But that was my first chance to kind of join a company and build a category from scratch. I ran again both product management and product marketing there. That is my passion: the intersection between product and narrative. And it was just an incredible experience. I mean, to get to kind of take an early product with a very small number of customers and figure out how to tell a story about it. And, you know, my passion is creating categories, right? Really telling, carving out a different market, a space in the market and getting analysts to agree and recognize that. 
Um, and then obviously building and delivering the product to support it. And so that was just an incredible experience. You know, doing our early first product advisory boards and then building a community and seeing that be successful. Um, and so, you know, it was pretty clear at the time. I'd been there, I guess, three and a half years. And we, it was really clear the company was going to go public. And for people who haven't kind of prepared for that, quite often what you're trying to figure out how to do is find what's called another chapter of the company, which is like, what's your next act that's going to propel growth from 100 to 500 or, you know, from 100 to a billion. And so, you know, I think at that time, the CEO and I just ended up kind of with different points of view on what would be next. And I'm not, I'm not super good at executing plans I don't support. So I ended up leaving and really wasn't sure, did I want to found or did I want to do another product gig? Because I've just genuinely loved being a product leader and I love kind of interviewing customers and then going back and showing them something and watching their eyes light up that we found something amazing for them. So I probably took a couple months just to network and talk to people. And I guess if I was netting it out, I just didn't find anyone I really wanted to work for. And so I said to myself, well, you know, why don't you want to work for any of these people? And the answer was because, you know, I think I would have a better plan than them. And so that, that was kind of my clue that I probably shouldn't go work for anyone and I should found my own company. And when I realized that, that was when I started my journey toward UserMind. And I'm, you know, at this point I'm thinking, gosh, you know, a lot of people who found have worked on their idea for years. And of course I didn't, I wasn't planning that and, and hadn't decided that. And so I literally just sat down and made a list of things that I thought were changing in the world. All of which, by the way, this seemed very obvious now, you know, the business will buy more software than IT going forward and it'll all be SaaS and it'll all be subscription and everything will have an API and so kind of long story short, I thought, wow, there's going to be little IT teams that form in marketing and sales because it's actually quite hard to manage software, even if you're not managing servers. And so I literally just went out and did a bunch of interviews. I probably talked to 300 people over four months because I thought there was a persona that was underserved and kind of went through two ideas. The third one ends up being UserMind. My first idea was a little too consumer. I didn't think I was the right founder. My second idea, I was too late. There were already five or six companies doing that. And so when I happened on this idea for UserMind, I thought, wow, I think I'm going to be early. I think it could be big. I think it's a category. Um, I actually think it'll change the world positively. I could do it for 10 years. Um, and so that's kind of when I said, you know, this is the idea. This is the company. So I'm going to go do. I've been at that for six years and, and we've raised, you know, $50 million dollars. You know, and it's been incredible to see both our early customers, like our alpha and beta customers, and then our early paying customers. And, you know, we recently just did our first very large seven-figure deal. And so it's just been super cool to see this idea that began on paper in my living room become real software, delivering real value for real customers. That's amazing. So tell me just a bit more about what is UserMind? What are you guys doing? What's the, what's the core thesis there? Sure. You know, I kind of came at it bottoms up. So we would describe ourselves today as being all about the customer journey. And I'll explain what I mean. So when I was talking to these operations teams, and mind you, I went and talked to marketing operations and sales operations and HR operations. What became really clear is that each of those teams has a lot of software. And that's a lot of software that stores customer data. And guess what? None of it's really connected in real time. And so it became really clear to me is that the more that the front office is transformed, the more tech they buy, the more channels emerge to talk to customers, actually the more fragmented the customer experience becomes. And I thought, wow, you know, 
And by the way, you know, I probably didn't realize it at the time, but for people who don't, you know, when I started to do research and customer experience, um, it became pretty clear that almost every big enterprise company, and by that I mean like banks, you know, JP Morgan Chase or retailers, every single big enterprise company is being disrupted by startups right now. And if you look at Uber, how did Uber, you know, disrupt taxis? It's customer experience. You know, we can just like go on our phone and ask for a cab. We don't need to call and you know, we know exactly how long it'll take and the car will be clean, but it was this digital disruption. And so I thought, wow, there's this moment in time right now where every single big company is going to have to figure out how to deliver really great customer experience or some startups going to kill them. So there's like urgency, right? There's a business problem and people need to act now and now in the next five to 10 years, or there's very negative consequences. You kind of always need that for a software company to emerge. Um, and so, like, well, how would you do it? You know, if you're a J.P. Morgan Chase or you're a big bank or, you know, uh, United Healthcare Group or a big customer, you can't, you don't just have a luxury of, like, releasing a mobile app. You can't just throw away your call center. And so I thought, well, someone will invent integration software that essentially connects those systems together and deliver software that monitors these customer journeys in real time and intervenes to optimize customer experience. Um, and so, you know, kind of imagine a scenario where you're, you know, starting to open a new bank account and, you know, today the bank probably doesn't even know you're doing it and you might get these timed emails. Well, what if, you know, you got a bunch of behavior driven communication and if you didn't finish KYC, what if someone called you and asked you for that data? And then what if we could predict that, uh, you know, some of your payee data was wrong and changed the experience? And I thought like, that's the future. These big companies can't rip and replace all these channels they can't just throw it away and build a mobile app. And so they're going to need this glue to monitor these customer journeys and help optimize and improve them in real time so they deliver better experiences. And so that's kind of how we would describe what UserMind does. So the, the analysts, being analysts, call it terrible names. So Forrester describes what we do as journey orchestration, meaning like we're a conductor conducting the orchestra of channels to improve customer experience. Uh, Gardner calls what we do a customer engagement hub, right? A hub that connects the systems together to optimize engagement and interaction. But kind of either way you slice it, the concept is to move from essentially siloed channel-oriented interactions where like you're on the website and you call the call center and the call center person has no idea what you were doing. And then, you know, like I give my example, I bought a house and Comcast, I was, you know, calling them and I wanted my subscription and I wanted HBO to watch fights and super nice. And then the guy comes to the house and sets it all up. Uh, again, he's super nice. And then I go to watch my first fight and HBO is not set up. And it's a great example where like the touch points were great, but the journey didn't happen. And the funny thing is nobody needed, when I called them and said, Hey, I don't have my HBO subscription. Actually, nobody needed to come to my house. It was a software setting. So, I mean, it just seems silly. Why isn't there something like UserMind listening to each of those touch points and checking and saying, hey, you know, on Michelle's bill of lading, she ordered HBO. But, you know, like checking the technician's settings, HBO is not configured. If there was something like UserMind listening in the background for those signals and then intervening and, you know, potentially as simple as changing the setting or putting a pop-up to the uh, guy at the house and saying before he leaves, hey, you're missing, you know, you haven't turned on HBO – Either way, I would have had a massively better experience than what I did. And so that's, to me, that's the future is how, how can you kind of listen to these disconnected systems in real time and put some intelligence around that to intervene and improve, 
you know, customer outcomes. So that's, that's what we do. I feel like I've been very lucky to found the company in a moment where that's very strategic. You know, many companies are really trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves around customer experience. They're trying to think about what they call customer journeys. You know, how do you help a customer get to the outcome they want? And so I think it's, uh, although I came at it bottoms up, you know, I kind of came at it thinking about it as a technology problem. Uh, It's turned out to probably be the biggest business problem I found in my career with the biggest business impact. You know, if you can do it well and customers are happier, companies have more loyal customers, they make more money. Uh, So it's probably the most impactful problem I've ever worked on in my career. And so who would the buyer be? Like, is this a customer support? Like, you know, what org inside of an enterprise is, is buying UserMind? Yeah, you know, I, I would say like today, that's our biggest challenge in the maturity of the market. So first of all, you know, anytime you you are running a category creation play where you're creating kind of a brand new piece of software that somebody has to move budget to and there's a buyer for, you know, it's, it's harder in the beginning to get it off the ground. And what I would say is we, we don't just sell to one persona. So we sell to three core personas. In some cases, we sell to a centralized CX team. We call them empowered CX teams. So they started, they were early adopters of NPS. They probably own Medallia or Qualtrics. And they have journey maps and they're thinking and and they're respected cross-functionally. That's kind of one of our buyers. And so the second buyer would be, in some cases, companies, you know, want to solve the problem of experience and they create a digital team. So our second target is a chief digital officer where people have said, hey, we're going to take you know, MarTech and the call center and uh, some of these back office apps and put them all together and empower someone to improve these experiences. Um, And so that's kind of our second buyer. You know, it's not really a shared service. So CX is like a shared service. It's more like, hey, that buyer owns everything that's involved in delivering the experience. Um, And our third target's marketing. So in some companies, like e-commerce companies or particularly in retail, quite often the marketing team is really the ones empowered to think about these experiences and journeys for better or for worse, the benefit of, of what we're doing is it is a new idea and a new market and, in, and a new category, and you get to set your price point for the value you're delivering. The challenge is that I don't think yet it's settled what's the best org structure to drive this. And so maybe five years from now, we'll see that like it's always CX or it's always the CDO, but today our, our target can vary by vertical and, and by company. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. I want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning of where you started. Because there's something you said that I thought was pretty incredible. And it's that you were working at a gas station. (laughs) And then you got a training program that basically put you on a trajectory in order to be where you are today. I I just want to like talk a little bit about that because I think that's pretty amazing. And it it feels very relevant, you know, in today's age. So can you just like provide a little detail on like like how, I mean, how intensive was that? Three months, six months, is it, you know, and it sounds like it was almost like an apprenticeship where you were then, you know, sort of staying there for some amount of time afterwards. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. So, you know, it was called the Professional Development Program. And, you know, these types of programs, I mean, I'm sure it's relevant now, right? They're quite often created when you have a scenario where more skills are needed in a market than exists. So I would say for developers today, a lot of these programs exist, right? Think about code.org or... Lambda school, yeah. Whatever. Exactly, Lambda school, right? So, so you know, you want to find a set of skills that's highly valued and scarce. And then quite often big companies, and particularly it's a good entry point because a big company has the money 
and the ability, like a startup really probably wouldn't hire you because, you know, you have to have every hire be maximally productive, but big companies, you know, have the luxury of time and money. And so CompuWare kind of built this program, as I mentioned, called the PEP program. And they were taking, you know, everyone from like fresh college graduates to people like me, putting you through a rigorous interview process. And then literally they gave you a house in Detroit, a rental car, rent paid, you received a very minimal salary and over the course of three months, they put you through this rigorous training program. You know, everything from, you know, simple coding to SQL. I think your graduating project was building an application end to end and demoing it and making it work. Um, And the idea was that they could produce consultants and technical salespeople who, you know, were deep enough to be effective, right? And you weren't going to go and lead a project. You were going to go and like work with more experienced people to be successful. And of course, you know, you then, if you look at a pre-sales person at that time, you're probably talking six figures. And so the way that you, you, you had to commit to work for them for, I think it's 18 months, but it might've been 18 months at a reduced salary. And that's how they kind of recouped their investment up front in you. But, you know, I look back on it and it's completely life-changing. You know, the fact that I, you know, probably wouldn't have gotten the interview if I didn't have, you know, college on my resume. But, you know, it was this like incredible opportunity. I certainly worked my butt off while I was there and tried to make the most of it. But I mean, it completely set me on the path of being in tech and frankly, in enterprise, you know, changed the entire course of my life. So yeah, I mean, very unusual opportunity, but I think there's probably plenty of those today. Uh, I think, you know, if people are looking to get into tech, it's a great way to get in. Yeah, it's also just a, you know, I think it's a really interesting and inspiring thing to to want to be able to do someday, right? To be able to even maybe have that same program, you know, at UserMind in in 5 years where you can bring out the next set of leaders to do to make the same journey. So, that's really amazing. Mm-hmm. Cool. So then a couple other questions about some of the things you talked about. Sure. So, you know, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners have have read Ben Horwitz's book, The Hard Things About Hard Things, mm-hmm. and have probably, you know, read his perspective on the Opsware uh, acquisition by HP. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really interested to hear your take and sort of how how you perceived it inside of you know HP and how you sort of built consensus around getting this acquisition to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I think that's that's an interesting take that that we don't often hear. So I'd I'd love your I'd love your experience there. Sure. Well so you know a little bit of backdrop. One, I mean I had completely fresh eyes. So you had, you know, a bunch of leaders coming in Uh, from Mercury who, you know, weren't attached to previous decisions. And sometimes for big outcomes, you know, that is really invaluable, you know, and I think as a leader, like asking yourself, where do I need fresh eyes? But so when we were acquired, I didn't have a background in the space. I I came from the testing space. I didn't know about data center automation or or operations. So when I took over the business, um, I think I was just asking, I was all about first principles. And so if I was describing to you the state of the business within HP, I would say, first thing, HP had acquired three separate companies that they'd put together to make this data center automation solution. And so for people who don't know Opsware, Opsware was a company that built automation software for discrete pieces of the data center. So they had a server automation product and a network automation product and a storage automation product, and they had a runbook technology that glued them all together. And the value proposition of something like Opsware was, hey, the infrastructure in the data center is exploding and you're virtualizing, so it's only going to get infinitely more complex and humans can't keep up. You need to automate patch management and deployments and so forth. And so, again, they were an idea 
which is a great idea, but their timing was impeccable. And, and people were just, with the rise of virtualization, it was just impossible to hire enough admins. And so that was what was driving the shift in the market or the why, you know, why was, why was this market strategic? So that's always the first question when you're in a big company, at least from my point of view, you have to ask yourself is like, is this important as a market? How big is it? How fast is it growing? Um, And from my point of view, it seemed, you know, that the market was now and it was going to grow extremely fast without answering whether HP had to own it you know, it was very clear that it was, you know, it could be, because, you, you know, if you're HP, you can't be in a market that can only generate $50 million in revenue. You have to ask yourself, you know, can I, can I get a $500 million business here? And if I can't, it's not worth doing. And so kind of like check, right? Huge market, very fast growing, being driven right now by these like technology explosions, no other alternative. So really clear to me, it was a great market to be in and you could build a big business there. So then your second question you have to ask yourself is like, how well positioned are we as HP with our current set of offerings to win it? And so, as I mentioned, the company had acquired a company called Radia, uh, Novadime, and, and a, another product called AppIQ. And I'm forgetting what the third thing was at this point. But it was this like patchwork quilt of stuff that was put together and didn't really integrate and they didn't really have a great vision. And kind of more damning from my point of view, I think we were like sixth or seventh in market share. So when I looked at it, I said to myself, okay, so two kind of core things. One, where are we in the market? Like, is it early in the market and we can go from seventh to third or is it late in the market? And at the time, it was pretty clear that the top three players were Opsware, BladeLogic, and IBM. And if you just added up the market share of those three vendors, and, you know, it's market share is always a question, but it was pretty clear that they were north of 80% of the market. And so when I did that market analysis, I said, well, you know, this is an early market. Right? This is not a market where if you add everyone up, we have 20% of the market. This is a market where like the players have been established. And so then you have to ask yourself, or this is the kind of thought process I walked the leadership team through of, okay, if the top three players have basically dominant market share, which in my mind means the market position has been set and the market is now in hyper growth. Ask yourself as HP, can we, do we have the capability to out innovate? HP or Blade Logic and Opsware and somehow disrupt this market, like disrupt the position of market. And so my kind of answer to the leadership team, what I said to them was like, HP is not an ch- innovation company, it's a channel company. So like, what are the odds that the market's going to have some weird technology shift that's going to let us, and by the way, we're going to be right about it, and then we're going to do it for 18 months, and we're going to be able to fundamentally change what I think is a settled market. Um, and it's a very low likelihood that that's going to happen. And so then the question becomes, okay, if we, if we agree that like it's a very big market and you could make a ton of money in it and the leaders are already very clear and it's highly unlikely that HP is going to innovate our way through just engineering and product into winning that market, then you have to ask yourself as a company, do we have to win the market? Because if you have to win the market, then you really only have the choice of buying a leader because you're not clearly going to build your way to winning this market. And so you have to ask yourself, well, can we just walk away? You know, that was what I proposed. So option A was go buy a leader. Option B was shut that business down. Because it doesn't make sense to put a ton of engineering on a market you can't win. And if you want to win it, you need to go buy a company. And so that, when I did my first QBR, that was kind of the, that was how I summarized what I thought was the state of the market and the state of the product. And I think then the question becomes, well, do you have to be in this market? 
And so I would say two things about that. One, I mean, virtualization at that time, it's like, it's like containers today, you know, like it is the biggest disruption to the way the data centers run in like, you know, however many years. Right. And so I think people felt like that was a tornado and it was important to be there. And I think the other piece was HP had a, it's, it's cash cow, by the way, it's load runner was a product called HP OpenView. And if you don't know, HP OpenView is monitoring technology and it was monitoring technology for the data center. So I think the question I asked the leadership team was, okay, let's imagine we walk away from this market. What happens if monitoring and automation converge? What happens if winner of automation can then disrupt the winner of monitoring? So then the risk of not buying a company, because you can't build your way there, the risk of not buying a company is you might create risk in your most profitable business in the entire company. And so if you really kind of walk back through that math, uh, it's pretty clear that if you think that it's not only a big opportunity, but if you don't act, it might create risk to the most profitable business in that software company. I think it becomes very clear to the executives that like they should do something. And so that was kind of the first phase is kind of creating this narrative around why and where the market was, et cetera. And then, you know, our leaders kind of went out to the sales guys and asked, you know, how often are you being asked about this software? And I think it was at a QBR. We talked to all the sales leaders and they were kind of all, hey, we're having our ass handed to us and it's urgent and we're seeing these opportunities. And so kind of I framed up this narrative and then we asked the leadership sales organization, like, you know, could you sell this and how often are you walking away from revenue? And the answer was, we're a channel company and our channel is in all these deals. And so not only is it like there's no way to build it, but man, if we bought it, everybody thought we could double or triple or quadruple the business really fast because our salespeople are selling to the same people who are buying this stuff. So that was kind of the second piece of the puzzle is getting alignment around the fact that our channel could be in these opportunities. And if we bought the company, probably there'd be a bunch of growth that would come out of it. So that kind of netted us out to agreement that we wanted to go look at M&A. And everybody's aligned on that. And so now the third thing is like, what are you buying? Are you buying Ops or are you buying Blade Logic? And for people who don't know, uh, Blade Logic was not a sweet company. It was only server automation and it had partnerships for these other things like network automation or storage automation. And Opsware was a suite. They had done some acquisitions and they had this kind of broader portfolio. And so, you know, I'd like just to net it all out because I could probably talk in detail about all this. Um, I mean, this is, this is incredible. This is <laughs> such great detail. I, I love this. I think, um, you know, our theory was basically that the winner was a suite vendor. Like the winner was going to have the automation capability for the whole data center, not just server. And so if you believe that that's where the market was going, and it's kind of cool now, I look back on it and there's a Gartner MQ and they had a data center automation wave. And so the market was kind of agreeing that it wasn't one product, it was going to be a suite that would win. And, and if I was denning it out, Blade Logic had a better product than Opsware. And so where the customer wanted to just buy one product, BladeLogic was winning, and where the customer wanted to buy a suite, Opsware was winning. And so, you know, we kind of went through this whole evaluation. We talked to both companies. And, of course, we had corp dev, so it wasn't like I was leading any of that. I was providing, you know, supporting commentary and was on all the calls and giving my feedback on the product. But, you know, at the end of the day, HP was not going to be able to do five small acquisitions and succeed. Like, as a company you kind of have to know like your own strengths and weaknesses. And so if you, you know, if you really look at it, were we more likely to succeed with 
one acquisition of all the products already put together that we could just put in the channel and win, even if some of them weren't as good, right, as competing products. You know, one suite, one acquisition, less integration risk, kind of a bigger story to sell. I think that was the right move for HP. It's a better acquisition for HP. And so we kind of went through this debate. And it's, it's kind of funny. I'll never forget it. We, we were in a room all talking about, like, who's voting for what acquisition. And people had voted Opsware and people had voted Blade. And I was the final vote and I voted Opsware. Um, and that's the one we went after. I didn't do the negotiation. Obviously, that ended up being a pretty big $1.6 billion deal. You know, I did sit in a sweaty deal room writing up the press releases and eating disgusting food while they were all negotiating. But uh, pretty incredible experience. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and look, you know, I think the really interesting part of these deals, in my opinion, is not the negotiation, right? It's not the, it's not the terms. It's, it's that case that you built, right? And sort of understanding... You know, your the the perspective of how do you build this case? I think you just did such a, a marvelous job of of walking through the logic and the different you know considerations. So thank you for that. That was really amazing. Sure. So what, let's just keep going on this thread because I think it's it's super interesting. Once you acquired the company, once you acquired Opsware, um, integration, right? And integrating companies you're acquiring is is generally a fairly complex task. Can you talk just a bit about you know your perspective on what? allowed you to integrate them so well and to and to really, you know, use your channel to sell it through and, and to make that successful? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, um, you know, one, it helps that Ben came in, Ben Horowitz, and took over HP software and was in charge. You know, you, you need a lot of exec air cover to make an integration work and kind of we had probably one of the best guys who could be out there doing it and helping us. And I had a great relationship with Ben from day one. So, you know, I feel like I had all the support I needed because, look, big companies are irrational. That's one of the central issues with an integration is that the standalone company is optimized to do what it does and everything about it is optimized to do what it, what it does. And then you kind of try to integrate into the Borg and the Borg has a lot of irrational things that make sense for a big company, but, for example, don't make sense um, for little companies. And so I'll give you examples. So when we were doing an integration, doing the integration of Opsware, I don't even remember what source control system HP had, but like HP had this mandate that like all development in HP has to be in source control system blah. Uh, and of course, Opsware didn't use that source control system. And, and frankly, actually, the code base Opsware was written on wasn't supported in this, you know, this configuration management system that HP had chosen. Mm. And so like, it sounds silly, but you know, the number of calls I was on to actually get a waiver, because look, if you're HP, it, there's huge benefits at scale. And remember, this is when Herd was running HP. So the benefit of simplification is actually quite gigantic at the scale of a company like HP. But it's irrational to spend $1.6 billion and like waste even a moment of your engineering time porting your source control and like rewriting the software into a different code base. So, you know, one challenge of integrations in big companies is these like weird, irrational things that just don't make any sense. And so you kind of have to just wade through those and you need enough organizational capital and support to deal with that stuff. And if you don't do it well, it can really derail 
things you're doing. So I would say like there was a lot of those. Although I would say as the person doing the work, it was actually quite eye-opening. I learned a ton. You know, having been in pre-sales and product, it was my first exposure to like every single piece of the business because you have to think about source control and think about license management and redo all the reps comp plans and partners. And so honestly, it was an incredible learning opportunity for me on kind of all the pieces of a company and how to think about getting them to mesh. Um, So there was kind of a bunch of weird irrationalities. Look, I would say the flip side, something we did well, and we didn't do it perfectly, is you kind of have two phases. Like you want to put that product in the channel as fast as you can and train all those reps. And of course, you know, HP had the benefit that we were selling to the data center team already. So it wasn't like the rep had to like learn a new person to go talk to. But, you know, we turned the ops for sales team into an overlay. And, and I think we did a really good job of sales enablement. We did a ton of training as fast as we could. And of course, in that first year, BMC bought Blade Logic, So it created a lot of competitiveness and organizational alignment around that we wanted to seize the momentum and really, you know, sell as much of it as we could to kind of seize market share. And so I think those were things we did well. Maybe we did them. I think partially we did them well because, I mean, I ended up taking over the Opsware product team and they were really good at it. Opsware had a great sales enablement team. But I think, you know, my background is a hybrid product manager, product marketer. I understood how critical sales enablement was to actually maximize return on the deal. So I probably spent that first year literally just doing training and flying around the deals um, and I think we grabbed a ton of market share from Blade Logic and from and you know from BMC in the process. Um, so that I think that was super well done. You know, I would say another thing is in order to make an acquisition work well, actually retention is one of the most important things. You know, it's if you have a ton of attrition, it's actually quite challenging because you know in enterprise software the IP is the people. You know how you sell is IP and how you build your software and what it does is IP. And so kind of more than in any other business, the people are very much the IP of M&A. And so, you know, I was very proud that part of it was that Ben took over the team. Part of it was that, you know, we did a lot of work, you know, the Mercury culture, I think meshed with Opsware pretty well. And so I think we retained a ton of people for the, you know, full two years. And that was, you know, probably a factor in success. And then you just make a bunch of mistakes. I mean, I point back to, there was one decision I wish we had done better when we were making all the ops work guys overlays, there was a question about compensation. And so we kind of gave the ops work guys had pretty generous comp plans to just go try to sell, you know, ops into the channel. And there was an internal conversation about, should we pay the HP reps extra? Cause as you know, you know, if you're in a bigger company, the comp plan kind of dictates your focus and reps are very good at gaming the comp plan. And if you change the comp plan, you can change rep behavior in a pretty powerful way. And probably my one regret is that we, we were arguing for the HP broader sales organization to have very specific spiffs in that first year to maximize their attention and really grab market share, right? Do a land grab. Let's think about the size of HP's channel. And, you know, it was shot down because, you know, it's a pretty big cost investment. And the company was such a bizarre mentality. This was kind of one of the weird things about being in HP when Herd was there is that the company was super focused on cost. And I think in software companies, you know, all profit goes to the victor, and you, you don't optimize for cost. You actually try to like lose money to gain market share. Because once you've won the market, 
it's super profitable for a long period of time. I think that was, you know, an area where like our software leadership understood that, but the broader leadership of HP didn't buy into it. And so that's just a great example of where, you know, we didn't win a battle. And I think we probably could have even, you know, stolen more market share and been more successful if we'd been able to do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, you know, when you talk about, you know, the incentives really driving bigger companies, it's so true. I think there's a special skill of of designing those kind of comp plans and understanding, you know, what you're really trying to strategically achieve through them as well. So mm-hmm. it's a very important area. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that you know you you said too was sort of you mentioned sort of in passing that you know you were doing product, but there wasn't really a division between product and product marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. you know when when I kind of Look back, and I, I talk about this sometimes, which is you, you read Ben Horowitz's piece about like good product manager, bad product manager. Yeah. It feels like historically, product was actually a subset of marketing, right? And then eventually, I think now we're in a world where there's a pretty clear line between product and marketing. And then, you know, and then product marketing sort of ends up being this org that sits between the two. But you know, I'd love your perspective on how that role has evolved, how you think it should be structured, and what you think you know makes or defines really like really good product versus really good product marketing versus really good marketing, and how do you bucket those? Well, I mean, I think I would start by saying part of the reason people are so confused about this in my mind is that the consumer and enterprise worlds are really different. So, in the world of a consumer product, whether that product is Uber or whether it's Nike's shoes, you know, you're just selling me a thing. And of course, and I'm not, I'm going to minimize the role of marketing, but like the number of touches and the amount of content to do a deal is massively less. You know, like I go to the Nike website and I search about the shoes and I spin the shoe around and I change some colors and I'm not minimizing how much influencers are involved and how key the community and brand are. But you're really selling just to me. Like, there's not a lot of other people involved in that decision. So it's, you know, the Nike is selling shoes to Michelle and, you know, or maybe to Michelle's mom. And the number of vectors or, or things intellectually that have to be evaluated to make that decision are smaller. And the price point, the investment, therefore, the, the risk of getting the decision wrong is much lower, you know, even though it feels painful if it's a $100 pair of shoes. Um, and by the way, you can return them. So now let's talk about enterprise. And I'm explaining why I think product marketing is so important. Enterprise is totally different. So by the way, in that world, you have product people and you have marketers. In enterprise, it's the opposite, right? So you're selling me a very high value item or you know, even, even like something like box is you know, thousands of dollars a month. And which is like out of the, none of us would just choose to go do that. Like who would just sign up, like even a car payment, right? It's a pretty serious decision for most individuals. So you're talking about the investments much higher and in enterprise software, that could be, you know, millions of dollars a year. That's thing one. Uh, And so you better get your decision right. Thing two, quite often lots of people are involved. And by the way, lots could be one to two people, or it could be, you know, 10 or 20, kind of depending on the complexity of your enterprise software. And then the argument to be made of like why to choose option A versus option B is actually often quite nuanced, Um, meaning, you know, why do you choose, for example, Salesforce Marketing Cloud versus um, Eloqua? Well, I bet you if you went to the website, you probably couldn't figure it out. You know, you have to like look at it and get in the details. And there's just a lot of nuances that might affect your company and help you make your decision. 
if that's true, if that's your sales motion and that's the kind of thing you're selling, then product marketing is an essential function. And it is of equal importance to marketing. And frankly, I would say my second belief, which is I think in the minority of the world right now, I think the companies that win in enterprise are the ones where there's very little daylight between product management and product marketing. Because at the end of the day, think about when you when you sell. If I'm if my job as a product marketer is to explain why user mind and deliver all the collateral to explain that and differentiate from our competition, how do I build product strategy if I don't understand the market landscape? And the best product people understand the competition, understand the landscape, understand what parts of the pitch work, and then potentially, by the way, build features just for the sales process. And I think sometimes we we say like, hey, product manager's job is to go talk to customers. And it's and yes, you certainly your job is to make customers happy. But your North Star job of product management and product marketing is to win the market. Win the market. That's your job is to build a profitable business for the company. And so I mean, I have a pretty strong point of view that those two things should be in the same function. They should have a single head. Um, and that is controversial. You know, most marketers want to own product marketing because they think it's more important that the narrative be aligned to the marketing motion. Whereas to me, like, if you really want to dominate a market, you need to make sure that the product marketing is intimately feeding into the product management function and vice versa. Uh, and the companies that do it well create markets and dominate them. So when I was at Aptio, I ran both product management and product marketing, and it was extremely effective. But, you know, I think the org structure is, I think, first of all, most people don't understand these roles. They don't understand why they exist. And as a result, you end up with kind of weird org structures, you know, product management reporting into engineering or product marketing reporting into marketing. I think it's because these are roles that didn't exist 30 years ago. And, and I think many executives don't fully understand what these functions do. And I think it's actually a third thing, which is every other function in the company lends itself to measurement very easily. So if you think about it, marketing can be measured, leads and events and, you know, pipeline generation and engineering can be measured by feature velocity and services can be measured by you know, time to value. Well, how do you know if your product managers and product marketers are good? You actually can't measure that quarter over quarter, I don't think. And so I, I think this is the other challenge with creating an independent function is it's just more comfortable to like just measure velocity or just measure leads. And so put product management and engineering and put product marketing because it's really, really tough to know. And by the way, the people who are really good, it's 10x better than the people who aren't good. But either way, you can't look at a number and measure the product marketer or measure the product manager. Like, what are you going to measure? How many decks they produced? Or, you know, they built 10 Jira stories, but are they the right 10 Jira stories? Because there's a big difference between the right 10 features and the wrong 10 features. So I think this is part of why there's so much angst around what is product, where should it report, what's the thing, because if you really make it strategic and build it as its own function, it's actually really hard for the CEO to know if it's good, unless they've done it. No, oh, that's amazing. And do you, So in your perspective, you would have sort of a chief product officer, a CTO, and a, you know, a CMO sort of all be three peers running their prospective organizations and you'd have product marketing fall under the chief product officer? I think in an ideal world, and by the way, I'll tell you at my company, it doesn't look like that. So my head of product, my product marketing right now isn't, isn't marketing, but I also run the company. So 
you know, I think some of it is the skill set you have. You know, if I, um, I think my head of product is amazing and he's better at inbound. So some of it is also the people that you have. But look, I've been doing this for 20 years. I don't have a hard time telling whether my product or my product marketing team is good. But I also, I, if you had a sales-oriented CEO or an engineering-oriented CEO, I don't know how I would train them to know. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So your, your perspective is because you are a product and product marketing leader, mm-hmm. then that becomes a central skill set of the company sort of like almost because of that. And so to have another person who's doing that at the same level that you are, I mean, like it's, it just becomes a little bit like you need more assistance on sales, right? Because you're not a sales focused CEO, you're a product marketing focused CEO. So you're saying almost like it's based on the skill set of the top leadership and then sort of supplementing their base from there. Yeah, I mean, look, I think definitely the kind of founder you are changes the dynamic in your leadership team. You know, they say the hardest function to have is always the one the CEO used to do. I think in our company, it's the opposite. Like, I, I'm actually, even though I'm involved in product decisions, um, I don't spend a lot of time on product because I can spend a very little time with Arun and, like, assess his plan and give him feedback and do that very efficiently. Mm. Whereas if I'm working in the field, I don't have 20 years of sales experience. So, you know, it's going to take a lot more time for me to probably achieve the same outcome because that's not my superpower. Oh, got it. So, and, and you think the challenge there is giving you the context that you need in order to, to help make effective decisions in some of these other orgs. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, my head of sales who's been doing selling in the enterprise for as long as I was doing product can tell whether a deal's real really fast because he's got a spidey sense and he's developed this, you know, however we want to describe it, you know, it's expertise that's somewhat tangible and somewhat intuitional. And I don't have all that. Yeah, and that's Derek, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who I, I worked with for a few years when we were both live person. Yeah, he's incredible. You have a great sales leader there, that's for sure. He always, and he, interestingly, my perspective, well, part of the reason I always liked him is because he understood the value of of product and product leaders to come in and spend time with customers and and sort of explain things, you know, in a deeper way than just hand-waving and try to push the deal through on a relationship basis. He really liked, you know, that sort of deep value explanation, so... He's a great guy. I mean, he's an enterprise guy. You know, enterprise yeah. guys understand that they need product, they need product marketing, and if they do their job, they can sell, you know, pretty high price point deals. But ultimately, the product better work, and we need to deliver on our promise. So he's an incredible head of sales. I feel very lucky. Okay, I want to touch back on a couple of the things you said. So mm-hmm. one thing that I think is really interesting is sort of the ideation phase, right? So, you know, a lot of times, to your point, the way that I think most people would talk about founding a company is they would say, oh, if you just want to start a company to start a company, like you're doing it wrong, right? You need to have some crazy idea that you've been obsessing about for the last five years and it's the only thing you can think about and then you go do it. And that's actually not the experience that I have either. Like the, the, you know, I wanted to start another company. I started one previously and then I was ready to do the next and my same co-founder and I actually spent you know, a couple months just like writing down one pagers on different ideas and prototyping different things and, you know, investigating different markets and areas that we wanted to, to build for. So, you know, I love to hear kind of a little more detail about how you chase down those different options. It sounds like you had three that you really liked. And 
you know, what made you exclude the other ones other than just being too consumer, maybe too late? Or like, what, what are the details in that? Yeah. I mean, so if you kind of remember back to, I said, Hey, my high level hypotheses, cause I always think, so maybe first thing I would say is I believe that the thing that causes software companies to get created is change or as we like to call it in technology disruption. Mm-hmm. And that only when the change is big enough from the status quo to the new reality, is there a reason for somebody to like buy something new or do something different? And in some cases, um, you know, like that's just a revolutionary new technology. Like, like containers are so much better than VMs that we all have to do it. You know, or VMs are so much better than hardware that we all have to do it. But actually that kind of like discontinuous innovation where the new thing is just like a new paradigm is pretty rare in software. Most software companies take Opsware. You know, the VM made it impossible for humans to keep up with the amount of change in the data center. And so in order to deal with that reality, and by the way, there weren't enough administrators. So even if you could hire enough people, there weren't enough of them. And so like inevitably there was enough pain that people were going to buy something to change the status quo. And so the central premise always to me of building a company is like, what is the changes that are going to create an opportunity for a new thing, a new way of working to be inevitable? So that's my first statement. My second statement is I have a secondary belief, which may or may not be true, but I believe it, is that a hundred million dollar company, and I mean exit, like you got a couple million in revenue and somebody buys you, maybe you had one change. But if you really want to build a public company or a real material software company, almost always there's multiple disruptions in that to that persona or that market at the same time. And the more things changing on that person, what that means is the more pressure there is to act now and the more the bigger the change that has to happen. And so the value of your software is greater. And so I was looking like that was what I started with is. You know, how can I find a person or a set of personas who are the subject of multiple changes? And so I was looking to try to find a category. Um, and so that's kind of why I wrote down that list of changes and decided I was going to focus on kind of these enterprise personas. And so actually, I didn't quite start with operations. I started with just end users. I'm like, well, so what's the impact of all of us that there's all these different systems that are not integrated? And my technique was really simple. I sat down and I like... I like day of the life interviews. So I think, by the way, the worst product people ask their customers what feature they want and build the feature the customer wants. I think that's like the opposite of good product management. Good product management is interviewing the customer and they tell you they want something and finding out why they want it. And then collecting all these problems and then going back to your engineering team and thinking of a better solution to the set of problems that you found than what the customer imagined. Because the customer's feature is an imagined solution to a problem that they have. And so first you have to figure out, is this a ubiquitous problem? Like, should I spend any time solving it? And then second, like, what's the best solution? And, and really the answer to neither question is the customer the best one to answer. So that when I say like, that's what product managers and marketers should be thinking about and doing. And the way I like to do that is ask about a day in the life, ask who you report to, ask what you do, ask who you like, what you don't like. I like, I like to ask a lot of very fact-based, but not super leading questions and see the patterns in a bunch of interviews. And so I literally just wrote down a bunch of questionnaires and they were things like, I don't know, like when do you open your laptop first in the morning and how do you, how many software applications do you use and tell me about in what order do you use them and which ones do you love and what ones do you hate and like what do you wish you could do and if there was some magical thing somebody could build for you, what would that be? 
And so originally kind of my, my hypothesis was like Salesforce sucks. Somebody should reinvent the desktop and I'm going to go do that. And so my first tranche of interviews probably were like 40 salespeople. And I've been an enterprise so long that it was pretty easy. I would just ping people I'd work with and say, Hey, can you give me five minutes or, you know, half an hour? And people did. And so my first idea was like somebody should invent a new UI for the CRM that basically connects not just to Salesforce, but email and Yahoo. And my, my kind of conclusion was reps do two things, account research and deal management. And there's not one system that's good for either of those. So like I could build an app that basically for research is like connecting to Yahoo and Discover.org and LinkedIn and all this stuff. And then for deal management, it's like Salesforce and email and calendar. And probably you could build a really killer experience that transformed the way of working. But no customer asked me for that. That was me listening to like their description of what they did and saying, wow, like that seems stupid that you have to like all these different systems and you don't like them and you have to context switch. And so the end of my interviews, that was my synthesis. And I thought, awesome, it's right, by the way, somebody should do this. And people are. And they should just, my theory was you could build a new UI on Salesforce and give it away freemium and eventually disrupt the entire CRM market and build a new backend because actually Salesforce doesn't really do what reps need to do. Um, it's a forecasting tool. So that was kind of idea one. And then I thought to myself, well, I am not a consumer person. I don't, number one, I don't know much about how to build a beautiful, sexy UI. And my real reason for not doing it is salespeople are laggards. They're not really early adopters of technology. So it's like a terrible persona. Ideas right. Data is right. Probably there's a whole market around these role-based desktops. Somebody should do it for every industry, but like not really, that's not, I'm not the right founder for that company. And so I went back to my interviews and there was the next thing was there was a thread. A lot of them worked at SaaS companies. And so they had a lot of usage data and they were constantly being surprised that software that they'd sold wasn't being used. And so I said, well, who would give you that data? And they said the operations team. And so I went and interviewed 40 operations people and kind of became really clear to me that customer data was going to be incredibly strategic in the next 20 years. And so I thought about mixed panel, KISS metrics, segment, somebody should really build a collection, a set of capabilities, you know, that, that allow people to collect and optimize customer data. And then I looked at the market and I thought, well, there's already all these companies, you know, mixed panel was hyper growth and KISS metrics had been around and segment and Google. And I thought, well, I don't, I'm not really interested in being like the 10th vendor in this space. Um, so I'm right. Great idea. Somebody's people are going to make a lot of money doing this, but I, it's not what I want to do. And so then I went back to the operations team and I started to talk to them about, okay, what if you had all that data in a single place or could connect it together? What would you want to do? And the answer was like, what people really wanted to do was not like every day they'd come in and download all this data from these different systems and they'd munge a big Excel spreadsheet in order to generate their, as an example, customer onboarding funnel. Like, where are my customers? Where are they dropping out? Where are the problems? And then they would have a hypothesis around, like, how to improve that. And they'd have to go back to each individual tool separately and, like, make some changes. And every day they were doing this. And I'm like, wow, this is really stupid. Someone should build a technology that connects into those systems and optimizes these critical, and I didn't think about them as customer journeys, I was thinking about them as workflows, like lead to customer as a workflow, and, you know, customer to renewal as a workflow, and I thought, well, it seems really dumb that there's no Overwatch system, there's no monitoring system monitoring each of these customers and like looking at their context across all these systems. And then like the future is AI. Why do we need human beings to intervene? We should be able to build rules and models that basically 
auto-intervene and optimize the workflow. And so um, that was kind of my third idea. And I thought, I don't think anyone else is really doing it. And I think it could be big. And I think it's enterprise, so I'm a good founder to do it. Um, and so that's kind of how I netted out on UserMind. I love that. And, and Michelle, I know you have to go very soon. So, But I want to give you one last uh, chance here because I know like, you know, Tableau is one of your customers and, and they're a, you know, a software SaaS vendor. And so I'd love to hear just your pitch on, you know, if there's a company out there that's a SaaS or software company, that's either an application vendor, how should they think about using UserMind and just give a pitch for however long makes the most sense for you? Minute, two minutes, whatever, whatever you can do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, look, if you're in a, if you're in a SaaS company, your business is a subscription business. And so your CAC is probably high and you make all your money on renewals and lifetime value. And so, you know, here's the deal. If you're thinking about how to get customers renewed, your customer onboarding journey is super strategic. And probably you don't really have any visibility today to all the steps across all the teams and systems and in real time know where that customer is. And so just first of all, like how much better would your company be if you had that visibility? And then secondly, how much more, you know, lifetime value and renewals and cross-sell upsell can you generate if you had that visibility and could experiment with different interventions to improve the customer's experience. And so, you know, from my point of view, you're either a SaaS company and you have a churn problem, you should be talking to us, or you have a renewal problem or you have a loyalty project, you should be talking to us. Or, you know, if you've gone public and you want to lower the cost of supporting these customers, orchestration and automation is a huge value prop for that. Like you've got a recipe, but you don't want to hire a thousand more people. Well, you don't need to. Robots can do that work. So you've either got a challenge, you know, churn issue or some kind of renewal problem and you need transparency and you want to try to get your way out of that hole. We can help. You know, or Tableau being the case where they'd gotten so big that they just couldn't keep adding people to optimize these experiences. And so they wanted to think about orchestration and automation. If you're in either of those two buckets, you should be thinking about orchestration technologies and hopefully use mind. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.